Hi, this is Pastor Emily McGinley from Urban Village Church, Hyde Park, Woodlawn. If you've been to UVC, you'll know that we seek to be three things, bold, inclusive, and relevant. We know that there are countless folks across the country and out there in podcast land like yourself, seeking a message that will bring insight, hope, encouragement, and joy as we do this thing called faith. Please consider making a financial gift to help us with this work of inspiring, equipping, and sending out agents of gospel life and inclusive love. Just go to www.urbanvillagechurch.org forward slash give. Thanks for listening and God bless. Our scripture passage for today comes from Luke chapter 15 verses 1 and 2 and then skipping down to um, 8 and 10. Listen for what God is saying to you. All the tax collectors and sinners were gathering around Jesus to listen to him. The Pharisees and legal experts were grumbling, saying, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And then, skipping down to verse 8. Or what woman, if she owns ten silver coins and loses one of them, won't light a lamp and sweep the house, searching her home carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Celebrate with me, because I found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, joy breaks out in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who changes both heart and life. May God add a blessing to the hearing and understanding of this scripture. So I remember once when I was a kid, I saw this kind of poem of sorts by a guy named Martin Niemöller. It goes like this. First, they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I didn't speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. Now, Niemöller was actually a Christian pastor pastor, uh, serving the church in Germany um, during the time of Nazi rule and was very outspoken against uh, the Nazi regime and also the church's complicity in supporting the philosophy of the regime um, and uh, ultimately ended up spending the last seven years um, of Nazi rule in a concentration camp. And I was reminded of this poem because a little over a week ago, 35 leaders from across Urban Village engaged in a two and a half day long workshop around analyzing and understanding the nature of systemic racism. And this training got me thinking about all the ways that we draw these lines between each other. Lines about who's in and who's out, who counts and who's disposable, whose perspective is valid and whose isn't. Lines drawn intentionally or without any real thought at, out, thought at all. Who's in, who's out. This is what our passage today is all about. Our passage is one of three parables or stories with a point. Each of these stories points to the central, most strident claim that the gospel makes. Everyone belongs. No qualifiers, no requirements, no specific prayer even to ask Jesus into your heart. Just everyone belongs. So here's the situation. Jesus is having a Sabbath meal at someone's home, but not just anyone's home. You read it at the beginning of chapter 14 and verse 1. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to share a meal in the home of one of the leaders of the Pharisees, they were watching him closely. So there are two things happening here. One is that this is not really a 
private family meal. This is kind of more like a public roundtable discussion of the top and most important religious leaders at the time. I mean, you might think of it as a kind of rabbinic version of The View, because crowds are gathered to listen in, especially because this dude Jesus is there, and everybody knows he's not just any celebrity guest. He could really stir up some stuff. It'd be like the ladies on The View, uh, it, you know, inviting Melissa Harris Perry on as a guest or something, right? She like kind of burned it down um, on MSNBC. And so, you know, people are kind of like wondering, well, what's she going to say, right? So it's a kind of see and be seen kind of event, a know and be known sort of Sabbath dinner. That's the first thing. The second thing is this. You keep your friends close, but you keep your enemies closer. They want to co-opt Jesus so they can get some of his shine and maybe even more so possibly keep him in check a little. You know, see, if you adopt someone, if you bring them into the fold, that gives you an opportunity to muffle them, right? But homie, don't play that. And instead, what happens is that everyone is sitting there going through the motions of being elite and all the while Jesus is telling these parables and really just like throwing shade all over the place at these self-important people. By chapter 15, the author of Luke sort of teased this up in verses 1 and 2. All the tax collectors and sinners were gathering around Jesus to listen to him. The Pharisees and legal experts were grumbling, saying, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. The morally inferior people, the tax collectors and sinners, today you could fill in the blank, right? Are t- they're totally into what Jesus is saying. They've been inching closer with every story Jesus tells. And at this point, they're basically huddled in around him. And the important feeling people are kind of feeling some sort of way about Jesus because they suspect that the things he's saying are about them somehow, but they're not exactly sure how or why. And maybe they're also probably feeling like a little jealous about Jesus's popularity. And so they start doing the thing that we begin to do when we feel rejected. I don't need you anyway, right? But here's the thing about rejection. When it's felt by people with money or privilege or power, I don't need you quickly turns into, who are you anyway? You are nothing. The noses rise higher and the people become smaller. I remember when I was in high school, um, our basketball team, which I really don't really remember actually being all that good. But anyway, we made it to like the championships my senior year of high school. I were like, I don't you know, I'm not much of a sports person. So like, you know, it was like the top, I don't know, eight teams, right? And, um, and we were playing another team um, in a, a school that was in a um, uh, less economically advantaged part of town. I kind of grew up pretty solidly middle class. And um, when it became clear that we were losing, people in, um, on, in my high school's crowd started this chant. And I don't know who started it, but uh, there's this chant and it went, you can beat us, that's okay, you'll be working for us one day. And I remembered sort of thinking like, ooh, I don't, I don't really feel that great about this. But, um, you know, I was also 17 and uh, just really didn't have much of a um, kind of moral philosophy developed in my mind. But anyway, this, this chant happened, right, because it became clear, like, we were not going to be the winners. And so in a way, like, this is kind of how the Pharisees, these leaders are starting to feel, Right. Who are these people? Just a bunch of tax collectors and sinners. And who is Jesus anyway? What kind of person would spend their time with people like this? And Jesus can feel them, 
right? He can see their eyes narrowing and their minds drawing the lines. He can feel them shutting down and shutting out. So he tells these three stories, three stories about belonging and God's inclusive, invasive, insistent love. A shepherd who so loves his sheep that he'll leave the 99 to find the one that got away. A wealthy father whose love can't be dimmed by the poor choices his son has made. And here today, a woman with 10 coins who turns her home upside down to find one that had gone missing. Three different stories of three different people, all who have lost something deeply meaningful and immeasurably valuable. They won't be complete without it. I mentioned earlier that our leaders spent some time in a workshop around analyzing systemic racism. And, you know, it was really hard for everyone. For the white folks, it was a reckoning with the ways that you're trying still misses the mark and can make people of color feel wounded. And for people of color, it was a reminder that even the most well-meaning, intentionally trying to be woke white people and spaces are still blind to the ways that white supremacy exercises itself through them, these people that they're in relationship with. Now, you want to talk about spiritual warfare and demon possession? Let's talk about white supremacy and the way that it wreaks havoc on individual souls and collective communities. And I'm not even talking about communities of color. Everyone gets hurt. But that's not what this sermon is about. (laughs) The training was heartbreaking, but it was also hopeful all at once. It laid bare the ways that we are missing the mark with each other, which, by the way, is the literal definition of the Greek word for sin, to miss the mark. And the ways that we need to be aware of the lines that we unconsciously draw between one another. The ways we need to try harder in treating one another as wanted, as belonging, as loved. And this longing for love and inclusion goes both ways. What I'm talking about is how, at the end of the day, whether we like it or not, we need each other. So we try. We negotiate and we push through the pain of identifying and dismantling white supremacy within ourselves and our communities because what this is, really, is a searching for one another, a seeking one another out. And like for this widow, nine out of ten just ain't good enough. Good enough is not good enough when it comes to God. Remember the passage from Genesis we looked at a few weeks ago? God made this world and didn't say, eh, good enough. Right? God made this world and said, supremely good. We are not complete until we are complete. And so we have to do the work. That means having the courage to light a lamp in the shadowy spaces of our individual and collective souls. It means emotional labor that we spend sweeping our house, cleaning up, negotiating, and dealing with our stuff. It means searching carefully, taking nothing and no one for granted when it comes to one another. Our modern world may say that people and relationships are disposable, but our Lord and Savior says otherwise. Jesus ain't about that life. He's about real relationships, real relationships where we show up with and for one another. And when we notice someone is missing, we turn the world upside down until they are back in the fold. Nine out of 10 is just not good enough. 
It means also, though, celebrating together the joy of recovery. This little party that this woman threw, she probably spent the value of the coin on it. For her, though, maybe it was less about the money itself and more about being part of a community that knew her fear and anxiety when the coin couldn't be found, who knew what that coin meant to her and could authentically celebrate with her when she recovered it. Now, there's this ad campaign by MasterCard that ran about 10 or 15 years ago and kind of ran for like quite a while. Um, you've probably seen a variation of it, but here's one of them. Two tickets, $46. Two hot dogs, two popcorns, two sodas, $27. One autographed baseball, $50. Real conversation with 11-year-old son, Priceless. There are some things money can't buy. For everything else, there's MasterCard. There are some things that money can't buy, but for everything else, there's MasterCard. Now, a credit card company, which if there ever was a symbol of American capitalism, recognizes its own limitations to be able to to create those those uh, to to purchase those priceless moments, right? So we're in this sermon series about worth, and for some things, worth can't really be measured or quantified, right? What's the measure of the lost coin that this woman had lost? There was the monetary value of the coin. Scholars estimate about a a day's wages, but there was something more here. We don't know exactly what it was, but there was something about these 10 coins that made them worth more to this woman than 10 days of wages. It may be that this woman was poor and really needed the money. Jesus doesn't really elaborate. That's kind of something that scholars can attack on, because why else would someone be so frantic, right? But Jesus doesn't elaborate, which is an indication that maybe that detail, how much the coin was worth, isn't the point. The point is that a coin was missing, and it had been found. And as I reflected on how money is talked about in this passage, and actually, you know, throughout the Bible, I realized something. The purpose of money is always oriented away from the accum- from accumulation and toward the facilitation of life. The purpose of money is always oriented toward the facilitation of life. Money isn't good and money isn't bad. Money is a means for creating life. It's not about the thing. It's not about the money. It's about the thing the money allows for. For example, we don't need money to make church happen. But the reality is that without money, church wouldn't happen the way that it does here, right? And maybe you would actually prefer that. I wouldn't be able to pastor or preach at the level that I do. And maybe you would prefer that. We wouldn't have consistent childcare or consistent musical leadership. No outreach at festivals or websites or podcasts or opportunities to help some of our members in times of need. Money made the anti-racism training possible. Money given by faithful UVCers who saw the potential, the possibility for us to do better, to be better, to live better as followers of a gospel of reconciliation and hard truths that we can face and hold and deal with. It's not about the money, but what the money created space for. A training to get us woke, which is followed, will be followed by an internal audit to help us stay woke. This is the value of money. Helping us facilitate Jesus' central message that everyone belongs. 
a big part of this series is to talk about why it's important to think about the financial commitment you make to church. A lot of people call it tithing. Church does not need money, but money can help facilitate church. Money helps facilitate the nuts and bolts, the structure and container of community so that the thing that can't be purchased can happen more easily. It's the bowl so that we have something to put the soup inside, the spoon so that we have something to enjoy the soup with. We could eat soup without a spoon and we could maybe even eat soup without a bowl, but all of that sure does make it easier and more enjoyable to eat the soup. It's easy to forget what money is for, or even worse, to begin to confuse money for the thing that money can't buy, that money is love, that money is community, that money can fill these God-shaped holes in our hearts, but it's just not true. We'll be moving into a time of stewardship next month, asking folks to make a financial commitment for the year of 2017. And your commitment means a lot of things. One of them, one, it means that you are willing to entrust all aspects of yourself to God's project of reconciliation, that everything, that everyone belongs and everyone is loved. Secondly, it means that you think that UVC is a place where that project is being lived out faithfully, not perfectly, but faithfully. And thirdly, it means that you understand the purpose of money, that money is not an end, but a means to a greater end, where God's inclusive love and wholeness of life for all is a real thing, and that we can get a taste of that thing by creating tangible space for it. You know, I love Urban Village Church, and I struggle with Urban Village Church because I love Urban Village Church. I struggle with us because I love us. But more than that, I love what God is doing among us and through us, proving in very real ways that the gospel, the life and ministry and message of Jesus has teeth, that it means something for the world we live in, not just to alleviate our pain and create safe spaces for folks who have not often felt safe in church. This is a powerful and very real part of our mission that we are living out, but in addition to that, right? Because it's not enough just to just to be healed at the end of the day, right? But beyond that, to, to go out and begin to, to heal others, right? To multiply the healing and the reconciliation and wholeness that we experience, that we continue to experience by being part of this community. In addition to our healing, beyond that, the gospel activates us. It gives us the courage we need to turn on the lights, to shine it in the most shadowy parts, shameful parts of our souls, and then deal with what we find there. It gives us the emotional energy to sweep the floors and clean our individual and collective homes, to do our work, to do our housework. And it compels us to keep searching for one another, to remember that nine out of 10 just ain't good enough when it comes to God, when it, guns, when it comes to inclusive community. And through it all, through it all, the gospel is our vehicle, our shelter, and our means to move through the hailstorm of pain and in our broken lives and this broken world. It gets us to a destination that doesn't ignore the pain that we've known, but shows us just how strong we are how strong we can be when we dare to come together and have the courage to face it and hold it and claim one another in love.
commitment, belonging, reconciliation, and love. This is church. This is community. This, and all things, is what money is for. God, we thank you that you are committed to us and that you call us loved, that you say that we belong, and that you take our broken selves and you put us back together and make us whole. Help us to live out the promise of that wholeness, that not only can we live flourishing lives, but we can help others live flourishing lives as well. Help us to keep our perspective straight when it's so easy to get skewed to remember that the gifts and the resources that you have granted to us, things like money, are all oriented for the purpose of your reconciliation at the end of the day to promote life. Help us to be people who promote life in every space and especially in this space at church and in this community. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, who pulls us together, who calls us loved, and reminds us that we belong. Amen.